Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment. Sponsored by Tech Help Boston. If you want to get someone's attention, just tell them a great story. If you want to inspire someone, tell them a great success story. And this is one of the best. In the spotlight, Emmy and Tony Award-winning actress Valerie Harper. She was introduced to a whole new generation of fans when she danced on Dancing with the Stars in 2013. Valerie had just been diagnosed with a rare form of brain cancer and was given three months to live. But that didn't stop her from dancing her heart out on that stage, and the whole country was rooting for her. That was five years ago, and Valerie Harper has defied the odds and is still alive. In fact, last year, she starred in the movie My Mom and the Girl with Susie Singer Carter, playing the mom with Alzheimer's disease. Now 78, Valerie has been married to Tony Cacciotti for 31 years. The cancer is still there, but new medication has made it possible for her to live longer. She says that there are good days when she feels like she's on her game, and then there are bad days where she just can't find the right words. Through it all, Tony and their grown daughter, Christina, have been at Valerie's side. If you were growing up in the 1970s, Valerie Harper was a household name. And the show she was a part of was Destination TV, the Mary Tyler Moore Show. The story of Mary Richards and her best friend, Rhoda Morgenstern, stepping out and making it on their own. Who can turn the world on with her smile? Who can take a nothing day and suddenly make it all seem worthwhile? Well, it's you, girl, and you should know it. With each glance and every little movement, you show it. Love is all around, no need to waste it. You can have a town, why don't you take it? You're I like to tell people that interviewing women, shining a bright light on their stories so that others can learn from them, is my passion. I came across this interview with Valerie in my archives, and I wanted to share it with you. I hope you like it. As we settled into the recording studio, I asked Valerie Harper about the power of friendship. Absolutely essential. And beyond essential, such a joy, uh, such an enrichment for me. And I have friends from when I was 18 dancing on Broadway. I, I have a few friends that I've fallen out of touch with, like a girl named Elaine Gray from Jersey City. That was grammar school. Bonnie Mackinac from St. Mary's Academy in Michigan. I remember I, their names. I haven't talked to them. Iva and I danced in Little Abner together. And she's now married to Ron Rifkin, a wonderful uh, stage and film actor. And we still laugh together. There's Nicole and Penny, and a lot of them are in the book. I, I just quoted them by first name as I know them because it wasn't about giving people name recognition, except names in my heart, uh, women that I just have so much, who've been there for me. We've been through all sorts of travail, sadness, losing parents, uh, all the stuff that happens as you age, and certainly children and husbands and earlier boyfriends. Valerie, let's talk about early influences in your life. Was there a moment when you realized that you loved to dance, that you loved to act, or did somebody come along and say to you, you could be really good at that? I had an aunt 
Orpha. Isn't that a strange name, Orpha? And in her later years, I just lost her a year and a half ago, and uh, she, people started calling her Oprah. And she said, it's not Oprah, it is Orpha, and I've had it for 81 years. <laughs> Before Oprah was born, she was yeah. funny, Canadian, good starch shirt and vinegar and a big heart. And Orpha would take care of me. There were three kids, an older sister, younger brother. And she said I pointed my toes. And she showed me in photographs that my little fat, fat, fat water rat baby. And they were. They were curled over. And she said, Iva, this child's going to be a ballet dancer. So I don't know if Orpha willed it for me or what. But I tell you, I saw Moira Shearer in the red shoes very early on. And I said, Mom, Daddy, I want to be a dancer. I lisped. That's what I'm going to be. Suffering succotash. <laughs> Daffy Duck. Daffy Duck. It's some WB uh, character. <laughs> Valerie, role models. Who was yours when you were growing up? I guess the most profound was my mother, who had been a teacher because her parents wouldn't let her be a doctor. She was born in 1910, rather provincial part of Canada, loved medicine. It wasn't seemly for a woman to look at bodies. So they said, but you can be a teacher. So she went to school, and uh, she taught in a one-room schoolhouse. Each aisle was a different grade. That's what they were like in those days. And she saved money and put it herself through nursing college and said, take that family. I may not have enough money to become a doctor, but I am going to be a nurse, and she was. And then she married dad, and that whole back to the hearth and no wife of mine will work type thing, she ascribed to that, raised the three kids. But after their 18-year marriage terminated, and daddy was a good guy. He was just living out what it was supposed to be, that post-war generation, sure. staying together for the children. They, they did split up, and for the better, after 18 years, she went right back and was nursing. She worked in nursing homes. She moved to San Francisco, worked at San Francisco General, did special duty nursing. She she just loved it and did it till she was, my goodness, I think she was maybe 72. She was taking care of Mrs. Flood. And in, in California, that's a known name. The Floods were silver barons. And uh, Mrs. Flood lived on the top floor of the Fairmont Hotel. The entire floor was her apartment. Wow. She was 102. So mom used to come home and say, boy, do I feel like a spring chicken. I took care of dear Mrs. Flood, and she's perky. She does her hair and has the company and would walk around slowly in the apartment. But mom at 70 was feeling like hey, 22. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, oh, mom was an incredible role model. She said I could do anything I wanted to do. Um, she talked early on about, uh, with anger, about the double standard. That we're all human beings, but there's a real double standard. I remember hearing that quite young. Valerie, if you hadn't been an actress, a dancer, what do you think you would have been? I always say this, and it sounds really dumb. A librarian. <laughs> I always loved the library. <laughs> I might have studied languages very intensely and been an interpreter at the UN. I thought that was a glamorous job. I'm telling you back when, in my 20s, when Kennedy was shot, I thought very seriously about joining the Peace Corps because his time had engendered the Peace Corps and the Ask Not really resonated yeah, for it me. Sure did. It defined and, the whole generation. Yeah. And I thought, gee, is this frivolous what I'm doing? And I, I would look at my mother. I said, Mama, you're, you heal people and you taught people. These are two incredible callings. She said, Valerie, go where your heart is and where your passion is, and you can find ways to make contributions all the time. And I never really was aimed at being a star. 
I wanted to work steady. And so it's interesting that that was my purpose, to work steadily, and I sure did. I had nine years in a character, which is kind of unheard of in television, besides something like Gunsmoke or sure. I guess maybe the kids on ER now. Yeah. It just it goes on year after year. But that's quite rare in our business. So, yes, I, I would have gone maybe into something with languages. Traveling. I, I, I still love to travel. I've been a lot of places, so I don't have the same thirst. But as a young kid, I really had a itch to move. I could hear the train whistle. Edna St. Vincent Millay uh, has that great poem. What is it? Um, that this place may be the best for me, but how shall I know unless I smell the Carthaginian rose? And I sort of had that. Wanderlust. Wanderlust. Like, wanderlust. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Valerie, I get a chance to interview singers quite often on this program. And one of my favorite questions that I ask them is to tell me what it felt like the first time they ever heard themselves singing a song on the radio. The things they say are amazing. Gloria Estefan said she was driving her car down the road in Miami. She was driving this horrible, rusty old 1973 Toyota Celica, and her song came on the radio, and her legs started to shake, and she couldn't keep her hands on the steering wheel, and she pulled over on the side of the road, and she started crying. What was it like the first time you ever saw yourself on screen? Oh, my goodness. You know, what's popping up is not screen. It's a photograph on the front page of the the New York World Telegram. I was living actually in New Jersey, but studying at Carnegie Hall in the 50s. This had to be 1955. I was 15, and I was a student at Ballet Arts, and they were going to tear down Carnegie Hall. And they asked the kids at the ballet studio, send some kids down, and they'll dance. They put on your toe shoes, get ready for class, and you'll hold picket signs. So we went down there, and then they started asking us to dance. So there is a photograph of me doing what is a grand jeté, which is a big jump, a ballet where you're almost in a split and leaping. And these signs are around me saying, save Carnegie Hall. And I don't think I single-handedly saved it. But I saw it, and it was on the front page of a New York newspaper. That was a huge thrill. It really was. Uh, The first time I saw myself on camera might be in the Arthur Godfrey show. I was doing Take Me Along, and I went to his ranch in Virginia. I was being interviewed with him. I saw a lot of stills of myself because I was dancing at Radio City Music Hall at 17. Not the Rockettes. I was in the Ballet Girls Uh because I was a ballet dancer. And other things, shows that I did, Little Abner. But I would say that that World Telegram thing was really a jolt. Oh, gosh, I'm really jumping high. That doesn't look too good. And I also said my toes should be more pointed. I was critical. I thought that could have looked better. If I was a little bit thinner, it would have looked better. And actually, looking at the picture now, yes, self-image is all. Is it not, Candy? It's just like, um, again, I'm quoting. I think it was either... Emerson or Thoreau, that public opinion is a weak tyrant compared to self-evaluation. We are so hard on ourselves. In addition to still being an incredibly popular actress, you are also the author of this fabulous new book called Today I Am a Ma'am. And throughout the book, you talk about different stages in a woman's life. Now, someone just said to me the other day, if you could be any age, what age would you be? And you know what I realized when I was trying to answer this person's question was, I've never been satisfied with any age I've been. When I was 20, I wanted to be 18. When I was 30, I wanted to be 26. I remember laying in bed the night that I turned 30, thinking, somehow, I am changed. I am old. I'll tell you what the bottom line is. I'm okay with where I am. I just wish I looked 10 years younger. 
<laughs> Candy, you're looking great. You're looking absolutely fabulous. You do not need to wish for that. But that's the thing. You can't have that without having done the time. And I think that men are what they do and women are how they look is a myth that should just be blown out of the water immediately. And it's a tough one because women ascribe to feeling they want to look good. I mean, I'm covering gray. I have my own portion of hypocrisy. I mean, I think Tyne Daly is magnificent with her white hair, gorgeous, long, and it's just beautiful. I think she's the only woman on prime time with her hair not colored. And so I, I admire her. I'm not doing it yet. Maybe next year. Age is just a number. My mother used to say that 30 was younger than 29. Because 29, you're wrapping up a decade. 30, you're at zero. You're just starting out. What you don't want to do is waste 30 hoping to be 20. I have a dear friend, Susan, and her mother said, you know, turning 60, 10 years ago when I turned 50, I said, ooh, I'm old. She said, today I'm 60. I wish I was 50. That's young. So it's all about perspective. And if we can trick ourselves into realizing now is what is of the essence. This day, this moment, and that famous seize the day, you really must. And stop being so hard on yourself. Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. What do you do when your home computer experiences some kind of a breakdown? Maybe you're working from home, you're on a deadline, you're freaking out, right? Not good. Hey, I've been there before, but not anymore. Here's what I do. I call Tech Help Boston, 781-484-1265. They are the best. They'll come to your home or help you remotely. Here's the number, 781-484-1265. Tell them Candy O sent you. Let's talk about the Mary Tyler Moore Show. You know, Valerie, I believe that that show really defined a generation, particularly for young girls who were growing up in the 70s and watching two professional women, able to be single, able to have a wonderful, rewarding life, although I do know you were lusting after getting married. But tell me the story behind landing the role of Rhoda Morgenstern and the chemistry between you and Mary Tyler Moore. This was a great woman that helped me into that part. Her name's Ethel Winant. She'd seen me in a small little theater thing in which I was playing two diverse, crazy characters. One was Vida Fontaine, sort of a Tallulah Baghead, this kind of verbose actress. And the other character, I was playing Ava Braun as an 18-year-old, talking about her boyfriend, Adolf. You know, I mean, it was a crazy, zany thing. Nothing to do with Rhoda. I don't know what she saw, but she remembered me and tried to find me. I didn't have an agent. So she kept making calls, called the theater. Well, who was the director? And she tracked me down. And Ethel was doing casting for CBS. She was one of the giants of casting that made careers in the old days. And so I was very lucky that Ethel did that. And they called me. I went in. I read with my husband, my then husband, not my current husband, but Dick Shaw, former husband, current friend. We have kept our friendship all these years. He was in Second City with me. So he coached me. And I really put an audition together. And I read, they said, that's wonderful. We want you to come back and read with Mary. And I did. And I didn't realize the import of that. But the very day I went back, met Mary, she was adorable, little white cap, covering hair. She'd been at a ballet lesson and she looked so cute and absolutely adorable in white trousers, I might add. Oh. This is a girl that can wear white <laughs> pants without an overblouse. Do you know? Do capiche? And so I was driving home. We were living in a small little rental house in West Hollywood, Dick and I. He was out on the lawn when I pulled in. Ten minutes from the studio, he said, you got it. I said, get in the house. Don't say that. Don't, what are you kidding me? He said, I am telling you, I wouldn't kid you about this. You have the party. He said, don't be foolish. This is Hollywood. They have to do screen tests. This can't be. It was the easiest job I ever secured. 
candy. And that's including commercials that I went up for 10 times and lost or uh, Broadway things or dance auditions. And I was used to the audition process. You know, that's a very key thing that you have to have a certain toughness, I guess is the word, resilience, uh, willingness to be told no. And what I used to do is in an audition, do your best. If you do your best, you can walk out saying, if I'm not right, I won't get it. But I didn't sabotage myself. My husband, Dick, at the time, he was wonderful telling me, I say, well, there's 300 girls up for this thing. And he'd say, no, no, no. You cut down the odds when you go to an audition. And people can do this on job interviews. There's not 300 that you're against. There's two people, the one who gets the job and you, and they could be one and the same. So your competition is not 300, but it's one. Valerie, you've just finished describing auditions and resiliency and handling rejection. How much has fate played a role in your life? I asked a a clairvoyant once, what's your process? I mean, I was really interested. I think I was going to play one or something. Anyway, I talked to quite a few, and it was mostly women. And she said, you know, it's really not a big deal. It's almost like I get over your shoulder and look down for what you have created for yourself. I look over your shoulder at the path you have created. Is that interesting? Rather than saying spooky or seeing the future, it's almost like they're seeing where you're going because of decisions you've made and beliefs that you hold. I guess fate, it it resides somewhere in your own creation for yourself. A lot of life, though, and I know I've done it myself, is not stepping into the future, but hauling the past around in front, reliving it so that you're right. A lot of times if we can get off our beliefs or get off being right. I mean, there's a great quote. uh, What is it? Life is what happens Mm -hmm. on the way to your plans. And I think if you can just stay a little uh, like a basketball player on the balls of your feet, ready to go one way or the other. And a lot of things come up that we didn't plan on. I mean, people have terrible tragedies and it's not really what happens in your life. It's how you handle it. So when life throws you a curveball and there's an obstacle in your way, then how do you get around it? Well, sometimes you cry. (laughs) I find experiencing what I'm feeling, not acting it out and throwing bottles at walls, but I really actually, if I get really enraged or very grief-stricken, I sit in a chair with my both feet on the floor, hands in my lap. I learned this years ago in in an S training, and it works brilliantly. And just experience the feeling. Just let it up. Okay, feel angry. Okay, now feel more. And you side coach yourself. All right, more anger. How angry are you really, Valerie? Feel a rage. And you go into it, and you actually experience it. And often, at the end of all my rage, I start to laugh. It's almost experienced out. I may be still mad about something. It doesn't have the charge because I think a lot of what we suffer physically, emotionally, mentally is the suppression. I I know my weight, constant eating, it's just a dumb thing. I look at you and you're just a beautiful athletic body and I say, look at her in those leather pants looking (laughs) fabulous. You you are. You're just beautiful. And and I'm, I'm holding my own and I'm not sweating it so much. I mean, some of us have a body type that there are hips, this pelvis. <laughs> I must say that if you can experience your experiences in life, you're a lot better off. A while ago, I saw this segment on Entertainment Tonight. Valerie Harper and her daughter, Christina, go shopping for prom dresses. Tell me about your beautiful daughter, Christina. And how did your life change when you became a mom? Oh, everything changed. And as a friend of mine, Roma Downey, who had a baby recently, uh, she's the lovely actress on, of course, Touched by an Angel. And she said, you know, Val, when you become a mother, 
You have to get used to your heart walking around outside your body. I, I think it's an Irish saying or something, no matter how old they get or how far away. And they may come back to live. You, you know, in today's economy, a lot of kids stay home for a while. It's the end of a period. I do feel it ahead of me, and I'm kind of saddened by it. But I'm thrilled for her. So here she is going off to college, just like my daughter, Colleen. As you've raised Christina, what has been the most important value or golden rule that you've tried to pass on to her? Belief in herself and to trust that she can trust her own choices. She's a great kid. Tony and I, my husband, have never had problems. You know, I mean, if you have a child that's really having difficulties, it's tough for you to say, trust yourself. Maybe the very lack of trust in themselves takes them these places to please others. Mm -hmm. She's a very centered little human being, and I guess that's probably the best thing. And and love her, just loving her. And uh, I had a mother who praised me. Now, Tony is of another school. It's just he's Italian-American and, you know, well, don't say too much or they'll want to, they'll expect more. He's got a huge, generous heart. He would give away everything. He'll say, not bad, not too shabby. And for me, I'm saying, that's so fabulous. You are the most wonderful, beautiful creature in the history of the world. And she, I see her glow. She's, oh, mom, you're saying that. But she does like to hear it. Okay, now I have to tell you that you're just like Bette Midler, who was also a guest on this program. Start talking about her daughter, Sophie, and she gets all mushy on me. Valerie, if you don't mind, tell us the story about how Christina, your adopted daughter, came home to you. She jumped in my arms and said, Mommy, you picked me up. Oh. Now, that was powerful. <laughs> Guess who I saw three days later? I was buying wedding rings because quickly it was a shotgun wedding. I mean, Tony and I had lived together. And then this, she wasn't a baby baby. She was close to four. Oh. And so when she came, I ran to a shop and I bought our wedding rings and we bought her a ring. It was a three ring ceremony. She had a little gold ring with a ruby. I know. You're making me cry. I know. And there she is on my hip. She's with me two days. And she said, Mommy, Mommy, Let's go. Who do I meet? Shirley McLean. Shirley said, Val, what's this? I said, oh, Shirley, we just adopted. She said, oh, my God, I'm the mother of a daughter. How wonderful. And she said, hi, sweetheart. And she's going, mommy, mommy, let's go. And I said, Shirley, it's only two days. She's calling me mommy. I don't know. Does she have call every woman mommy? That's nice. She said, oh, shut up. She said, this is a miracle. Accept it. You're her mother. She's your daughter. You found each other in the universe. Now, what better person could I have met that day than Shirley MacLaine, who knows all about the universe, universes and many lives? It was just great. And I hugged her and I said, thanks, Shirley. It was a very, very interesting time. And she adopted us. She said, Daddy, Mom, great. Where you been? And she had been in a, not foster care, but in a babysitting situation. Her birth mother had been really responsible and paid for her keep with this uh, older woman that took care of her. The birth mother's boyfriend said, you know, he was adopted. He said, she's getting to be four. We've either got to take her and have her with us, or you need to put her in a permanent home. She can't just be here, neither in foster care, just in a babysitting situation. And I think they were very responsible in doing that. They found us. Boom, we were a family. And it was great because Tony and I were both uh, in our middle 40s. And we had a jump, you know, of four years. And we didn't, so we didn't do the diapering. But I've done plenty of diapering in my day. I, I was sure, a great aunt. I'm you sure know, I had many well. nephews and nieces and all that. But the Christina story, and uh, now she's of age. And the wonderful thing is that the records are open now. It's not this tight, closed, mysterious thing. I said, honey, if you want to, you know, and she said, well, Mom, I don't really care. 
So when she does, she does. But I, uh, I bless her birth mother for giving me this amazing gift. Best thing I ever did. And you know what else? I once had a realization when she was about nine. I was walking down Fifth Avenue. Who knows? In and out of Saks, thinking about a million things. She was at Schwartz with her daddy. I suddenly got a chakra, whatever they call it. It's kind of a, a realization. and went up my spine. I went, oh, thank you, God, that I never conceived because I wouldn't know Christina. Okay, so Valerie, let's just flash forward for a second to when uh, your grandmother and Christina's kids are sitting on the couch looking at reruns of the Mary Tyler Moore show. What do you hope they say to you? I hope they laugh and say, oh boy, that's funny, and that's good, and that's real. I think the shows are classics, not just for the 90s, because this was, what, 30 years ago, right? Not the 90s. What am I saying? We're in the, see, little senior moment. No, it, it has been 30 years. It has. I think they're real good writing, and I think they're about people dealing with themselves. And it might be archival in the future, say, oh, look how funny they dressed, or what are they talking about, or what's that reference? But I do think the humor, the human condition, the divine comedy will always be there because those writers were magnificent. Well, after spending half an hour with you, I can tell you I think you're magnificent. Valerie Harper, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed our show. Oh, it was my great pleasure. It really, really was, Candy. Thank you. And thanks for your work. Thank you for being a marvelous trailblazer for all of us. Thanks for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?